We are in the Gospel of Mark. We as a church have been uh, going through selections from Mark's Gospel. Uh, We've kind of jumped around a little bit here uh, for the sake of making it so we can land on the passages about the crucifixion and the resurrection on Good Friday and on Easter. So today we're going to backtrack just a little bit into Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open it. I'm going to read straight through the entire passage, Mark 6, 30 through 52, and then we'll pray and we'll take some time to unpack what it is that the Lord wants to teach us today from his word. So let's read together if you would. Starting in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw he was walking on the sea, They thought it was a ghost and cried out, for all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Let's pray together, church. God, I ask today that you would help us to not be like the disciples in the verse that we just read, that we would not have hearts that are hardened. God, instead, we want to see you. We want to understand who you are and what your truth is for us today. We want to come before you with understanding, but also with worship. God, I pray that you would guard my lips, help me to only say that which is your truth. And God, may all of us leave here today having a better picture of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him as our shepherd. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. In my family, uh, one of our favorite family night activities is to play charades, okay? We like to play charades. We have four young children in the house, 10, 8, 5, and 2. 
So it's a little bit tricky sometimes to come up with charades that we can all actually do together because my children don't have the full range of experience that my wife and I do. I will say this, and I do have permission to, sh- to say this, but my wife is the worst at charades. She's, she's not only really bad at guessing, but she's very persistent at it. She'll just keep saying the same wrong thing like 30 times, convinced that I don't know what I'm talking about, and she's actually right because of what my emotions remind her of. But my children, it's funny, you have to pick things that they're actually going to know. If I tried to act out Richard Nixon, you know, if I did this sort of a thing, my children aren't going to be able to get that because they have no clue who Richard Nixon is. But if I act out, say, Spider-Man, they're going to get that right away. In our house, Batman is the superhero. Uh, they would know Spider-Man, but Batman is the one that they would probably pick eight times out of ten for charades. Uh, that or Dora the Explorer or something like that, right? We play charades, but the way that it works, the reason why it works is because we have a shared set of experiences, We have a shared set of data that we can draw from that when we see certain activities or we see certain motions, it reminds us of things that we've seen before and we can call to mind the character that somebody is acting out. It's a very interesting thing when you analyze it, charades. Trying to get somebody to think of a person or a book or a movie without saying any words, without speaking, but just by acting it out. That shared experience is incredibly important. I was reading one scholar this week who talked about, he's from England, And he came to the United States to do a class. And in the class, the professor said, four score and seven years ago. And all the American students went, oh, and started writing and taking notes. And he was completely lost. He had no idea what they were talking about. When I say four score and seven years ago to you, what do you instantly think of? Abraham Lincoln, right. I thought I heard somebody say something about penguins. But (laughs) my ears are bad probably from playing music too long. But um, yes, Abraham Lincoln was the right answer. Right, Because we have this shared experience. At one point, we were in maybe elementary school or high school, and we had to study the Civil War. We read the Gettysburg Address, and we, we know that because we have a, a shared culture. I'll give you another example. Uh, one time, I was out at lunch with a couple of pastors, one of whom was Korean-born. He was born in Korea, and he moved to the United States in his teen years, and he has lived in the United States for maybe 25, 30 years now. And we're at lunch, and I went to take a break to get a drink of water, and I took my chopsticks, and I stuck them into the rice and left them sitting there. Okay, and the 9 a.m. service gasped because apparently we have people who are more familiar with Korean culture there. You all didn't seem quite as shocked, but for those of you who are not of Korean origin like myself, apparently what that signifies is that you are inviting the ancestral spirits to join you at your lunch. And so this Korean pastor said, hey, by the way, Aaron, I just want you to know that you have now offended all Korean Christians because that is ancestry worship and there's, there's, a, there's some serious... Um, you know, you don't do that. I didn't know that, so I pulled my chopsticks out and set them on the ground like a civilized person. You have to understand, we, we have these shared experiences, we have these shared understandings that then give us a common language to, to draw from, and so we see different actions, we see different activities, it causes us to recall something else. And without trying to sound too irreverent, I would say to you today that these miracles that Jesus performs, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water, are in fact a sort of charades. Jesus is using actions. He's not using words, but he is using actions to teach his disciples about who he is and what he came to do. This is not, as some maybe have heard it taught, I I admit I've heard some sermons taught in my lifetime where the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, it almost sounds like Jesus is just setting up his own magic show, like he's trying to get picked up for a reality show on A&E or something like just going out in the desert and doing magic tricks. That is not it at all. There is a deep and profound meaning to these actions that Jesus is doing. 
And because of the shared experiences of his disciples and the people who were watching, they were intended, Jesus intended for them to recall to mind a specific figure, a specific purpose for why Jesus came. And I would even remind you that this question about Jesus' identity is one of the most common questions we keep seeing come up over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, he teaches in the synagogue, and people say, who is this that teaches with such authority? And when Jesus, fe- I'm sorry, when Jesus um, uh, calms the storm, calms the wind and the waves, the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And we're going to see this again today. Who is this? What is his identity? What is it that he has come to do? And so what I want to do, actually, is I want to do this. I want to, as we go through the passage, I want to present to you these clues. And I want you to try to kind of follow along and see if, if as you see these clues, as you see these examples given, you start to understand what it is that, that Jesus was pointing to and who the, you know, the answer to the charades would be, okay? So follow along with me if you would. Let's go back to verse 30 and start reading through. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So here's the context. If you look back earlier in chapter 6, Jesus had sent the disciples away to kind of go on their first solo flight, as it were. He sent them out without him to go preach, to go heal, to go cast out demons, and so they went and did it. Then there's a little story about John the Baptist being beheaded. It takes us into a little bit of, here's some more context of some things that happened. And so right now, the disciples are returning from their first, can I say, mission trip? They're back. They're they're really excited. Jesus sent us out and we're back. We want to tell you everything that we did and everything that we taught. And understandably, they were probably tired. They'd been on the road. They'd been walking. They'd been hoofing it from town to town, going and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He's He's going to take them on a little retreat. Let's go get some downtime. For many were coming and going, and I like this, they had no leisure even to eat, okay? And as I was prepping this week, I thought, boy, that sure sounds like some days in ministry that I've had, right? Sometimes on a Sunday, it's just go, 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 go. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. I have forgotten to eat anything. But then I thought, actually, no, that sounds like every stay-at-home mom I've ever heard of in my life. Go, 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 and you realize 4 p.m., only thing you've eaten was like a string cheese that one of your kids left sitting on you earlier, right? We get any men from any of the moms, right? Like, just go, 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 go. No leisure even to eat. So it's not just people in ministry. It's people with all sorts of different life experience can relate to the disciples in this moment. No leisure even to eat. So they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, because Jesus is become quite famous, use the language of even a celebrity at this point, many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. That means that one of the disciples must have told somebody where they were going. Hey, we're going to this desolate place that people don't usually hang out. Okay, we'll see you there. And they sprinted. The people literally ran from all the towns to beat them there. Now, when he went ashore, he saw, this is Jesus, a great crowd. Now, before I tell you about what Jesus' attitude was, what do you think the disciples' attitude was? Oh, we've been exhausted. Oh, this is great. We're going to get a retreat. Who spoke to the people about where we were going, right? You think you're going to get some downtime. You think you're going to get some rest, right? This would be the equivalent for many of you. You know, you're going to get a, a weekend away with your spouse. You and your husband, you and your wife are going to go get away for a weekend. You walk into the lobby of the hotel and somebody from church is sitting there and they're like arguing and crying. You're like, oh, now I got to talk to them, right? 
I'm sure you all are much holier than I am, but I'm just saying, like, for example, something like that, where now you have to jump in to help and minister when you thought you were just going to go get a retreat. Just, I'm just trying to give you something emotionally to connect with here, okay? Stop judging. When he went ashore, though, imagine what the disciples felt like, but here's what Jesus' heart was. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I think in Matthew's gospel, it says he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So in these first verses, you've seen I've, I've underlined them for you so you can follow along, but there's two clues that we've identified so far. The first clue is that of a desolate place. We saw that phrase repeated multiple times in these verses, a desolate place. And the second is this idea of sheep and a shepherd. Those are our first two clues. Verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. There we are again. And the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. We already saw that it said at the end of, at the end of this passage, it said there were 5,000 men. They counted the men. They numbered the men. Very patriarchal society. That would have been common practice. So when you include the women and the children, we don't know exactly, but it's pretty safe to say that there were maybe 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 people, a large, large crowd. And the disciples say, we need to send these people away to the villages. They need to go get themselves something to eat. It's late in the day. But he answered them. You ready? You give them something to eat. Now, again, just to give you something emotionally to connect with, any of you have ever had a boss that gave you just some unrealistic timeline on a project you're supposed to work on? Some unrealistic amount of work that you're supposed to get done in a short period of time? Just imagine that. Wait a minute, what? What are, what are we supposed to give them to you? And they said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? <clears throat> a denarius was a, a unit of money that was about one day's wage for your average worker. So one day was a denarius. That's about what you would get paid if you were just your average laborer, your day job. So based on my math, which is suspect because I am a musician, remember, um, I can count to eight if I start at five. So the math is if, if the average United States uh, you know, citizen salary is 55K and that's about you know, two-thirds of your annual work, let's just say, for example, $30,000, okay? Jesus comes to him and says, you need to spend $30,000 on food. Now, by the way, also for sermon research this week, I went on a few catering websites. You cannot feed 10,000 people, period. But even if you could, you could not do it for $3 a head. It'd be like cold hot dogs. Like, that's about what you could do, right? So, I mean, they're basically just saying, we're just, we could go and spend two-thirds of a year's worth of money on bread, and we'd barely be able to feed them, right? This is an impossible situation. This is an absolutely ludicrous situation. Jesus has now pushed the disciples into a situation in which they are utterly beyond themselves. He's asked them to start a catering company in the middle of the desert for 10,000 people. Shall we go and buy... 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. <laughs> and when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Like, in case you were wondering, like, I've got one Lunchables and I've got some ketchup packets, right? Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in the groups 
on the green grass. Now listen to this. This is a clue here, the green grass. This is a clue. Mark is not one for wasting words. He doesn't give us a lot of extra detail. So why green grass? Why is he saying that? So after they sat down in groups, by, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. That's another clue. They sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate. They all ate and not just like a little bite. It says, and were satisfied. Like they got full. This is a miracle. As if that wasn't enough. As if it wasn't enough. I mean, five loaves of bread and two fish would not hardly have been enough food to feed just the disciples of Jesus. And yet this massive crowd ate and they were all full and satisfied. And as if to just, you know, put neon lights on it, it says that they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. That's more leftovers than the amount of food that they started with, right? Some of you hate leftovers. Could you imagine 12 basketfuls of leftovers in your fridge, right? And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And I often wonder, what's the, what's the mechanism that Jesus used to, uh, to, to do this miracle? Was it just the basket just started like overflowing like popcorn? Or was it just every time they passed it, somebody would like not look and then they'd look back and the basket was more full? We simply don't know. We sit a Cuisinart? <laughs> yeah, that's a good suggestion. We, we simply don't know the mechanism that Jesus used. But we can say this. As, as fantastic as this miracle sounds, I believe it to be true because I believe in the word of God and the word of God does not lie. Amen? Jesus multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish so that a massive, massive crowd ate and was satisfied and there were 12 baskets of food left over. Now, that gets us, there's a lot of clues in that last passage. So that gets us up to six clues here. So to recap, the first one was the desolate place. The second one was sheep and shepherd. The third clue is green grass. Okay, that is a clue, green grass. The fourth clue is the, the demarcations of hundreds and fifties. The fifth clue, okay, here we go, miraculous food. This is a big one, right? This is where like when you're playing charades, you start humming the Beatles song because nobody's guessing Paul McCartney, right? Uh, miraculous food. This is a little bit more of an obvious one. And then lastly is 12 baskets. All of these are clues. Now, I want to just keep going straight into the, the walking on water because these two stories are actually tied together. Some of you have probably thought of them as just two random stories, but you noticed when we read it through, it says the reason why they didn't understand Jesus walking on the water was because of the fishes and the loaves. So let's launch straight into this next section and see how Mark intends for us to see them as tied together. Immediately, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now let's just ask a question for a minute. Hold on a second. Jesus just did this remarkable miracle of feeding 5,000 people. I'm sure the people were quite happy. Why would he not just sit there and enjoy it for a while? Why would he not stay and teach? Why didn't they set up camps? Why does Jesus force his disciples to get into a boat? And I bet you the disciples were thinking like, hey, buddy, last time you forced us into a boat and told us to go across the other side, it did not go particularly well. We almost drowned and died, remember? But he, it says he forced them. The word there is very forceful. He made his disciples get into the boat. Like he had to convince them. Go. 
And then he, by himself, dismissed the crowd. 10,000 people, 15,000 people. You know, the, the gospel of John, in John's telling of this story, he gives us a little bit more information that Mark doesn't give us. He says this. He says that Jesus made the people go away because he knew that they intended to make him king by force. Right then and there, they were going to make Jesus be the king by force. Isn't that an interesting detail? It actually, it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about the way that our political system works, right? Every four years, a bunch of people get up and say, I want to be your president or I want to be your politician and vote for me and I will make sure that everybody has bread and I will make sure that everybody has food. I'll make sure that everybody has an Xbox and I'll make sure that everybody has health care and I'll make sure that all of like the scary rodents are gone and I'll make sure that everyone's wildest dreams come true. All you got to do is vote for me in November, right? And we're like, oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And we do it, right? We, we want people who can provide for us. That's something we look for in our politicians. We want politicians who can make bread appear out of thin air, right? Even though most of the time economics doesn't work that way. So it makes sense to think that the people like, hey, Jesus just fed us. This guy can take care of the food crisis in Israel. Let's make him be king right now. Let's march on Jerusalem. I bet he could probably make swords appear. I bet you he could probably make fire fall from heaven. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's kick those stinking Romans out. Let's take the nation of Israel back for the kingdom of heaven. Let's do it right now. And Jesus will indeed be king by the end of the story. But here's the truth about Jesus. Jesus will be king on his terms, not ours. Jesus will be king on his terms, not our terms. So he dismisses the crowd. It's not time for me to be king. So he dismisses the crowd. After that, after they'd taken leave of him, he went up on the mountain to pray. I love it. We just keep saying over and over, Jesus goes alone to pray, to be with his heavenly father. Now, when the evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. So let's, um, let's make our best estimate. The, the text doesn't specifically say when they launched, but when evening came. So somewhere around 6 p.m., okay? In the Hebrew day, evening would be this, about 6 p.m. when the sun went down. So 6 p.m., let's say they got in the boat, and that's where they, they started going. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Two things that are interesting about this. First, how did he see? He was alone up on a mountain. They're out in the middle of the lake. John also tells us it was about three miles. They'd made about three miles out into the lake. I think this is a divine seeing. I think this is something that the Holy Spirit revealed to Jesus. But then it says that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. If you guys remember back a, a few chapters ago when we talked about the, the wind and the waves and Jesus calming the storm, that was spoken of as being a great storm a massive storm. They were afraid that they were going to capsize and drown and die. This is not the same kind of storm. This is just, it's windy, we've been rowing for a long time, and we're not making any progress. It's, the wind was against them. Look at what it says actually in the next verse. The wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So fourth watch of the night is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., right? First watch is 6 to 9. Second is 9 to midnight. Third watch is midnight to 3. Fourth watch tonight is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Do some math with me. That means the disciples had been rowing for like nine hours. Nine hours rowing against the wind. 
Immediately after they came off of their mission trip, they thought they were going to get a rest and a break. Jesus had them start a catering company in the middle of the desert, and now they're rowing in the middle of the night, just exhausted and tired, and you can imagine probably pretty frustrated. Pastor Travis asked me this week, we were talking about this passage, he goes, why didn't they just turn back around and try again the next day? And I thought, that's a really good question, uh, one that I've asked too, and the only thing I could really think of is, Jesus was in charge. And they had seen his miraculous power and they knew that there was something unique. And so we're going to do what Jesus says, even if we hate it. I think of um, one time when I, when I lived in Alaska, my dad and I, we went fishing. We had about a 20-foot aluminum fishing boat. And it had a, I think it was a 50cc motor on the back. It's plenty big. And in, in Alaska, in certain rivers, there's so many fish, there's so many salmon that you can literally put a net. You're allowed to, you're legally allowed to put a net down in the river and just scoop fish up into your boat. It's called dip netting. A family of five could probably go home on an average year with 112 to 15 pound salmon. So we were doing that one year. We're, we're scooping up fish, dip netting. We had our boat was full and it's really getting heavy and we're, we're going and all of a sudden the motor died. The big motor died, the one that we were going to use to, you know, get back up the river to where all of our vehicles were. Now, fortunately, by God's grace, my dad had a little 10 horsepower backup motor that he strapped on the back and turned it on. You know, it's like basically a hairdryer with a propeller attached to it. It's just for like an hour up the river, just like just absolutely slow going and frustrating. I know how frustrating that feels when you're like making headway so slow. And that's with an internal combustion engine. This is disciples just rowing. That's just them rowing. Like you've got to imagine nine hours. They've made it three miles. All of a sudden, Pastor Travis's question, why didn't they turn back? Doesn't sound so foolish, right? Now here, it just gets better. This just gets even better. So about the fourth watch of the night, 3 a.m., nice of Jesus to wait till 3 a.m. I wonder if he got a little nap before he came out. Anyways, uh, 3 a.m., fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And he, I love this, he meant to pass by them. <laughs> that is hilarious to me. Like, that's not something they realized in the moment. You know that was something where they were talking later, like, Jesus, what were you doing walking on the waters? Well, I was trying to just go right by you guys. Like, hey, struggling much? And just walk right past them? That came out later. That's a later detail that Mark's like, man, that is really weird. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. No kidding, right? No kidding. But immediately he spoke to them. Oh, I love this. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Kent Hughes, a very respected pastor, author, biblical scholar, says that it is very likely that what we have translated as the words, it is I, is Jesus saying the words, I am. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. That he would have possibly even been invoking the divine name of God, the I am. I am the one in whom you can place your hope and your trust. Do not be afraid afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now look, they were utterly astounded, not because it's astounding enough for Jesus to be walking on the water, but they were utterly astounded because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't, to use the language of, of charades, they didn't understand the first Six clues. And so even when Jesus makes it blatantly obvious for them with the seventh clue, they didn't get it. So let's recap again. Here's, here's our clues. Desolate place, this theme of sheep and shepherd. We have green grass. 
We have groups of hundreds and fifties. We have the miraculous provision of food. We have 12 baskets, and now we have walking on water. I want to take a minute and unpack these, these clues. And as a side note, let me just say, all of these clues come from what we call the Old Testament scriptures, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the first 39 books of the Bible. The Bible, as you probably know, is not a book, but it's a library of books. It's, it's 66 books all stuck together, and it tells one story about Jesus. And there are some Christians who mistakenly think that the Old Testament is outdated or irrelevant or not important for our lives, and I would say to you that's absolutely not true. The Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for training and teaching, rebuking and correcting and, and training in righteousness. And so if you're a Christian, I would encourage you to read all of the Scripture to be aware of the full counsel of the Word of God. Don't just pick and choose the parts you like and don't just only read the New Testament. Interesting, I had, a his, I had an Old Testament professor one time who used to, jokingly, he would refer to the Old Testament as the Bible and the New Testament as the answer key. That's what he would call it. And he was joking, but he was trying to make a point that the story of, of God's redemption leading up to Jesus, and then once Jesus shows up on the scene, the New Testament books are, oh, now I get it, now I see. Let's take a few minutes and unpack these clues. The first clue is that of a desolate place. <clears throat> Another word for that would be wilderness or desert, okay? When you see the words wilderness and you see the word desert, the people of, of God living in this first century, they would have almost instantly thought of another leader who led God's people away from the city out into the desert. Exodus 13 says this, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The wilderness event for the people of Israel was very, very formative, very important. The second one, this theme of sheep and shepherd. This, would have, this is the language of a leader. This would have called to mind Moses, the great shepherd leader of the people of God. It says in Exodus 3 that in the period of time between when Moses was a prince in Egypt and the period of time when he came back to lead God's people out of Egypt, it says that he was in the wilderness keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. That's when God spoke to him from the burning bush. Moses was a shepherd of sheep for 40 years before God allowed him to be the shepherd leader of the people who would lead them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, ultimately by the leadership of Joshua to go into the promised land. So this theme of a shepherd leader is a huge one for the people of God here in the first century. They would have heard it this way. Green grass, this is a clue because for us it might not be that unusual. We have green grass for a large portion of the year, but for people living in Israel, green grass is a very short-lived event. All winter long the grass is, is dead and then in the springtime the grass becomes bright green and then after a very short period of time the hot sun and the winds come and kill the grass. So springtime, the, the month of Nisan, if you are looking according to the Hebrew calendar, it means that it's Passover time. It means that it's Passover time. The Passover is the celebration of when God released his people from Egypt. If I said to you that there was snow on the ground and there was jingling of bells on horses, you would automatically know that we're talking about Christmas time, right? So green grass means we're talking about Passover time, very similarly. Leviticus 23 is where we see that Passover is to be celebrated the first month of the year, the first month of the spring. Number four, the fourth clue, hundreds and fifties. This is a reference to organization and to leadership. And there's another clue of, in the Moses story. In, in Exodus 18, it says that Moses is leading the people basically by himself. He's trying to meet with everybody. And his father-in-law Jethro comes to him and says, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to burn yourself out. You need to raise up what were called eventually elders 
in the communities, in the tribes, to lead the people, to settle between disputes, and you need to have these elders over groups of hundreds and fifties. The leadership, it's, a, it's another clue. Number five, this miraculous food. Okay, this is, like I said, this is the big clue. Miraculous food, bread from heaven. You'll recall in, in Exodus 16, after Moses led the people out of Egypt, they get in the wilderness and the people start complaining. They say, we don't have any food. When we were slaves back in Egypt, at least we had good food. They say things like leeks and onions, which I guess they had different tastes or whatever, but it's fine. But I would rather have like some prime rib or something. But they were willing to go back into slavery because they had no food. Let's go back, Moses. We don't have any food. And so God miraculously provided bread from heaven. It's called manna. We read about that in Exodus 16. It would fall from the sky, literally fall from the sky six days a week, and they were to collect enough on the sixth day to hold them over for the seventh day, and God provided for the people in that way. You guys starting to track here? You seeing how these clues line up? Number six, 12 baskets. It's too many verses to just highlight one, but the entire story of the people of God is that there were 12 tribes, 12 sons of Israel that became 12 tribes. It's the reference to the people of God. In fact, we see throughout the whole Bible that the number 12 very often is a reference to God's people. That's why there's, incidentally, 12 disciples. And then number seven is if all of that wasn't just flashing loudly enough, Jesus comes walking on the water, and it's a reference to the crossing of the Red Sea. Listen to this in Exodus 14. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. There's a reference to strong wind. That could actually also be another clue in our Mark passage. And he made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. They're walking where they shouldn't be able to walk, where there was water. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So what I would say to you is this. Starting to get a picture here that Jesus is not just doing random magic tricks to impress people. Jesus is not just doing miracles just to feed people, although he does uh, obviously care for people and want to see them fed. But we can't just pull this one verse out and say, oh, the whole point of it is that Jesus wants us to start food banks. I'm not against food banks. Jesus loves feeding the poor, but that's not the primary point of this whole passage. The primary point is that Jesus is saying, I'm the new Moses. I'm the shepherd leader that you need. I am the shepherd leader, come. And when you see all of that, now it starts to make sense why the people wanted to make him king right there on the spot. But wait, there's a little more I want to explain to you about this before we bring it to a close and see how this applies to our lives. Listen, this, this theme of the shepherd throughout the scriptures is an incredibly important one. This theme of the shepherd, I, I would submit to you that you and I as human beings, we are wired for, we are made for Someone to lead us. We look for people to lead us. Why do you think people put up with uh, terrible politicians? Why do you think people put up with abusive relationships? Why do people put up with dysfunctional church leaderships? Because we crave someone to lead us. We really do. We were made to be led. We are referred to as sheep throughout the Bible a lot. And in case you've never owned or been around sheep, it's not a complimentary term. Sheep are dumb and smelly. <laughs> right? We're referred to as sheep, but we're meant to be shepherded. We're meant to be led. So that's part of why Moses is the greatest figure 
to the people of God. Moses is, Moses is the hero. I mean, before Moses, there was Abraham, and he was the father of Isaac, and then Isaac had sons, and then Joseph had sons, but it was just a, a family. This was the family. Then they went to Egypt, and they grew, and they multiplied. They actually became a great nation. And so when Moses took over the leadership, that was when they became a people. That was when they became a nation. That was when they formed. Every year, we celebrate uh, the 4th of July. It's our American Independence Day. That's kind of our nation's birthday, right? We celebrate by eating a lot of beef and by blowing things up, right? Just like the founding fathers would have wanted, right? You cannot even imagine how much larger the celebration of Passover was to the people of Israel every year because it was, it was all of that national identity but rolled into their religious identity, rolled into their ethnic care. I mean, it was, it was an incredibly monumental event. And so Moses is like, you know, Moses is George Washington and Babe Ruth and whoever else, Iron Man, rolled all into one, right? Moses is the leader. He is the hero. And so shepherd became a metaphor for leaders of God's people. But there's a problem. There's a problem. Every single leader, every single shepherd failed. Why? Because they're humans. They're sinful, fallen humans. Some did better than others, but each and every single one at some point failed. And so the prophets began to speak of a day when a new shepherd would appear, one who would lead the people with a heart of love and one who would lead the people with justice. In fact, it became clear that this new shepherd was not just going to be another human being, but this new shepherd would somehow be intimately connected with God, with Yahweh himself, that the Lord himself would in some sense act as the shepherd of God's people. Let me give you some examples as to what I mean. Ezekiel 34, you can read the whole chapter. I'm just going to pull out some highlights of it. This is what the Lord God says. He says, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? In verse 5, they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Does this sound familiar like our passage in Mark? There was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself, I myself, God says, I'm not going to entrust the shepherding and the finding of the people to somebody else. I myself will search for the sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 14, listen to this. I will feed them. I will feed them with good pasture, maybe green grass. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. Those who have taken advantage of others. I will feed them in justice. That's a good promise, amen? That's a good promise. This is God himself. This is what Isaiah 40 says. This is another prophet before Jesus ever landed on the scene. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This is a, this is a ruler who's going to come and maybe, you know, kick some behind and really make some stuff happen, right? His arm, and he rules with might. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. 
He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. You see the heart of Jesus in that way? Psalm 77, here's what David writes. He says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I think the people in the wilderness were feeling that day of trouble. They were hungry. They were harassed and helpless. The disciples were exhausted. They were in the day of trouble. I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Why am I so discouraged? I need to remember the good things that God has done. And now he starts to talk about the Exodus story. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Listen to this in verse 19. This is, this is amazing. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Does that sound familiar to our Mark passage? No, Jesus didn't leave any footprints behind. His way was through the sea. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And one other verse in Job about God walking on the sea, it says this, Job 9.8, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. God alone is the one who tramples on the waves of the sea, amen? So here, after all of this analysis, here's what we can say about this passage. If we were playing charades, we wanted to raise our hand and, and guess the answer. This is what we would say now, is that Jesus is the new Moses. He is the shepherd leader of God's people. He is God himself. Jesus is the new Moses, the shepherd leader of God's people, God himself. That is the meaning of the loaves and the walking on the water. Again, these are not random miracles. These are not just random acts of power. These are very specific claims to a leadership role, indeed a claim to divinity itself. This is in fact God, Jesus claiming to be God. So what does that mean for us? That Jesus is our good shepherd well, first of all, it means that our good shepherd saves us. Read with me in Isaiah 40. I'm sorry, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah. Again, speaking about this shepherd, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Pause for a moment. You know, we've talked about the sheep being harassed and helpless. We've talked about the, the people being found in difficult circumstances. You need to understand that as sheep, we are not just innocent victims. Oh, sure, circumstances are against us at times, and there are legitimately victims, a lot of victims in the world. However, the Bible is clear that we, like sheep, have gone astray, that we in our hearts, indeed every human being who has ever lived, has wandered from God. God would be their good shepherd. God would be the one who leads them. God would be the one who feeds them, the one who protects them, and we all choose to go our own way. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I want you to know I love you, but you are wandering in a path that leads to destruction. You think you know where you're going. You think that you're safe. You think that you can take care of your soul. You think that someone else will take care of your soul. But unless you know the good shepherd, you're on a path to destruction. And for those of us who are Christians, may we never forget, like the words of the song that we sang even this morning, prone to wander, even after I've come to know 
the good shepherd, I still am prone to wander and think that I know things better than God. Each one has gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. Who is him? The good shepherd, the new leader that's been prophesied. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Listen to this about the shepherd, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Christian, our good shepherd became a sheep and was slaughtered for us. Think about that. The shepherd becomes a sheep and is slaughtered. You and I deserve death. You and I deserve just punishment for our sins. Yet our great God became a man, Jesus Christ. He lived without sin and he went to the bloodiest, most horrific death imaginable on the cross for us as a Sheep, so to speak. And yet, that penalty he paid was for our salvation. On the third day, he rose again, conquering over sin and death. The first shepherd leader, Moses, led God's people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. But the new shepherd leader, Jesus, leads God's people out of sin and death itself and into eternal life. That's our shepherd leader. He saves us. And it's not just that he saves us, he keeps us. John 10, 27 through 29, this is Jesus speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know them. He knows you. Sheep, God knows you. I talk to some of you who, who feel like, wow, God couldn't pay attention to me. God couldn't have me on his heart. God couldn't have me on his mind. And I'm here to tell you, not on the authority of my opinion, but on the authority of the word of the God, that he does in fact know you. You are known. The Bible says that he even knows how many hairs are on your head. And while some of you are making that easier for God these days, don't miss the point that he knows us in great detail. You are not lost. You are not overlooked. You are not forgotten. Your shepherd knows you. Your shepherd knows you. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who's included in no one? Everyone. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Listen, if you are a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you are as secure as you could possibly be. You are held by the good shepherd. What if I snatch myself out of Jesus' hand? Are you part of no one? You are no one. I mean that differently than it sounded, but <laughs> I love you. You are, you are not capable, if you truly belong to Jesus, of wandering so far that the good shepherd will not come and find you. It might be difficult, might be painful, but your good shepherd will find you. Some of you have been wandering. Your good shepherd's chasing you down. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so I ask you, Sound City, are you trusting the Good Shepherd? For those of you who aren't Christians, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in another person? Are you trusting in the government? Are you trusting in education? What are you trusting in? Who's going to take care of your soul? Who will shepherd you? 
For those of you who are Christians, let me say this to you. I love you, and I want to say this to you in love, but I want you to hear this. We are so prone to turn to almost anyone or anything other than Jesus for the shepherding and care of our souls. You need to know that. When you turn to an, ex an extra drink or two or several extra plates full of food in gluttony, you're looking for someone to shepherd your soul. I'm harassed. I'm helpless. I'm exhausted. I'm rowing against the wind. I just need something to take care of me. The answer is going to be found in a bottle? For those of you men who are looking at pornography, or the women too, it's a problem for both genders now, more than ever so before. It's been said, I don't remember who said the quote, but every click of a mouse on a pornographic image is really a, someone searching for God. Looking for someone to take care of your soul. Who will shepherd my soul? Who will help me through the tough times? Who will be there with me when I feel harassed and helpless? Who will be there with me when I am rowing against the wind? For some of you, it's a relationship. You have put all of the proverbial eggs in the basket of this one other magical person who will satisfy my soul, who will care for me, who will love me, who will lead me, who will feed me. They'll feed all of my needs. I have news for you. There is no human being. There is no relationship. There is no politician. There is no pastor. There is no human being who can meet you and satisfy the needs of your soul that is found in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. And those of you who are Christians who continually finding yourselves turning to substitute shepherds, you need to come to the Lord in repentance and you need to come to him in thanksgiving saying, thank you for not casting me away even though I have turned to any and every other shepherd I could possibly turn to. I love you, church. You have a good shepherd who is far better than any of the substitutes that we trade in for. Amen? He's a good shepherd. He loves us. We come to him. He's full of grace and full of mercy. Think of that passage in Isaiah 40, carrying us gently in his arms. That's our good shepherd. Though we wander a thousand miles to the right or a thousand miles to the left, he's right there waiting because he himself comes and seeks us out. I want to invite you to respond here this morning. We're going to respond in a couple of ways. As, as usual, we're going to respond uh, first to the giving of our tithes and offerings. And I would remind you that we give not to get anything from God or not because, um, you know, we, it's some religious obligation. We give out of worship to the one who gave us everything, the one who gave his life. So I'll invite the financial stewards to come forward and begin the collection now if they would. You can give online. You can do the text to give if you'd like. But I would just remind you to give with a heart of response, joyful response to God. While they're doing the collection, we will talk about some questions, some discussion questions for you this week in your community groups or in your homes. So couple of these ones are a little more Bible study centered, okay? First one is, what is the significance of these two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water? Let's ask and see the significance. What does it mean that Jesus is the new Moses? Dig into the Old Testament. Dig into the story of the Exodus. Why is the theme of sheep and shepherds so prominent in the Bible? You can read passages like Psalm 23 or Isaiah 53 or Ezekiel 34 to help you in your understanding. But let's not just stay a Bible study. We'll do what... Um, one, one member last week told me to move to meddling. So here we go into meddling. Where do you feel harassed and helpless and share your current struggles with those in your community? You need to share. You need to open up. Number five, where are you prone to turn to substitute shepherds instead of trusting in the one who is the good shepherd? But lastly, I want you to focus on how is the good shepherd currently guarding you, leading you, feeding you? 
Take time to really reflect on his grace and his goodness in your life and share it with others. I, I had an opportunity this last week to have a conversation with someone who has been through um, just quite frankly hell on earth with, with a, a, a baby that was born, um, all sorts of health complications, all sorts of difficulties. It has been a really difficult year for them. But what was so encouraging is as this, this mother was sharing with me all of the difficulties that they, they'd been through Towards the end of the conversation, she started recalling to mind the ways in which God had actually showed up and really loved them and cared for them and walked with them through it. She was able to identify a hundred ways that things could have been even worse or ways that God really ministered to them that time. Even when we're in difficult circumstances, God may not pull us out of those circumstances, but he will be there with us, right? The, the solution to your problem is not new circumstances. The solution to your problem is knowing that Jesus is with you. And he cares for you and he loves you. So focus on his grace. We're also going to respond with communion, the celebration of the Lord's table, as we do every week. We take the bread, we dip it into the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience, and we remember that Jesus, the good shepherd, became a sheep and he was slaughtered for us. So today when you take communion, I want you to rejoice that Jesus is the one who leads us. Jesus is the one who feeds us. Jesus is the one who guards and protects us. We practice an open table. If you're a guest and you're a Christian, you're welcome to join us at the table. If you are not a Christian, we would invite you to become a Christian and come forward and take communion for the first time. We're also going to respond with singing as we do, and the band is going to lead us in some songs that really have that theme of God's care and provision for us. But we're also going to respond in, in another way that's maybe new for us in some ways, but I want it to become more regular. We're going to respond with prayer. And so over in this corner here, we're going to have some leaders, myself included, available to talk and pray with you. If you are someone who currently feels like you're rowing against the wind, or if you're harassed and helpless, or if you've been seeking to make Jesus king on your terms and not on his terms, whatever it might be, and you just want to pray with somebody, we would love to pray with you. And so um, this might be a really good time to not just jump up and race forward for communion Maybe you need to sit and reflect and, and think and pray for a little minute before you come forward. You're welcome to come forward, but I might just encourage you to, to sit and reflect for a minute. Is Jesus shepherding your soul? How is he shepherding your soul? So I'm going to close with this. I'll ask the, the band to maybe even just play quietly while I do this. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to read Psalm 23, the psalm of the shepherd. And I want you to let these words minister to your soul. While I'm reading this, the communion service can get in place and then we'll respond to Jesus. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, may we come to you now as our good shepherd. May we say no to those substitute shepherds. May we rejoice knowing that you love us and you care for us in all things. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Church, you can respond however you see fit when you're ready. So let's respond to Jesus now.